Welcome to We're Not Finished, a podcast presented by the studios of Key West. I'm Gwen Filosa. I'm a reporter at the Miami Herald. The studios is a leading art institution in South Florida. It's located downtown at 533 Eaton Street. For a list of events and more programming like this, go to tskw.org. Today I'm speaking with a New York-based writer and stand-up comic. She's written for The New Yorker and The New York Times. Latest book is called I'm More Dateable Than a Plate of Refried Beans. Ginny Hogan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And uh, first of all, the the book, I'm More Dateable Than a Plate of Refried Beans. I'm going to assume it's about dating. <laughs> it's about dating it's humor essays about dating um there's only one that's really about refried beans so in that part it is false advertising um uh, but it's about dating and um you've, you've had a couple of books you do a lot of writing I mean I know you do stand up all over um touring and such but but the writing is that is that kind of what you started out doing in humor or was the stand-up first Yeah, actually, so I used to work as a data scientist. And in that time, I started a data blog that was based around like, my online dates. Um, And I was like analyzing the data from them. But pretty quickly, I became way more interested in writing jokes than doing any kind of data analysis. So the blog turned into a humor blog. And then I worked in tech. And sometimes at tech startups, like you'll just find yourself with a lot of time randomly. Um, And I had just like a lot of free time. So I took a stand-up comedy class. I think if you're like in a low level position at a startup where it's really disorganized, it's like really easy for someone to just kind of forget um, what it is you are supposed to be doing. So I took a stand-up comedy class and then spent all my time writing stand-up. Um, and then about a year into doing stand-up and working in tech, I quit my tech job. Um, and yeah, that was kind of, that's how I got into comedy. And um, your work in the New Yorker is 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 obviously awesome. It, it, it's tough to get in the New Yorker. Did you know that? I mean, there's a lot of <laughs> um, people. Yeah, that's actually, I mean, I love the New Yorker editor so much, Emma Allen, but it's actually kind of an, an insane story of how I got in because, well, it's not that insane. It's just, I submitted to like the email they had listed on their website, like the open inbox for humor pieces. And I thought there was no chance that anyone would read it, you know, but then like, Nine months later, I get an email from the editor and she um, rejected the piece I sent, but she told me I could submit directly to her. And then after that, it was only like about a month or so until I got something accepted. But like, it's, I mean, I just would not have believed that you can just submit to an open inbox, that, that the New Yorker just takes open submissions. I love that. I love the New Yorker. I mean, it just, I think, uh, and their humor is just at a standard of, you know, uh, it's the gold standard. And you are, I mean, it's satire. Is satire harder than, you know, straight up punchlines? I mean, to me, satire just seems, uh, I can't do it. Uh, I find it a little bit easier because I started with it, I guess. Um, straight up punchlines are hard because you just like have to think of a new premise every time that you want a new punchline. Whereas satire, it's like one premise will give you like, 50 punchlines you know or so um satire I think once you have like the game of what you're trying to create it's easier and the other thing I like about it is that it's very impersonal um sometimes with my stand-up I get hung up on like I have to I'm presenting my stand-up jokes as myself like they have to be the jokes coming from a person who is me you know whereas with satire like I can basically take on another character in my writing and I feel like that gives me a little bit more freedom and um I I've discovered you on Twitter I follow a bunch of comedians and um you have 
like tons of followers. How, <laughs> how long have you been on Twitter? How did that, I mean, it's because you're great, but I mean, how did that happen? Were you purposely trying to get a lot of followers or did, was it organic? I'm purposely trying to get a lot of followers all the time. I think I'm like the most shameless person on Twitter. Like anytime I have a, a tweet that goes mildly viral, I'll be like, I'll, I'll post a clip of myself and be like, please follow me. And like, I think people at some point just take pity on me because I'm desperate <laughs> for followers. Um, I don't, I, I started tweeting like four or five years ago. I started doing it as like a way to workshop um, my jokes for stand up, but now it's like clearly its own thing. You know, like my Twitter entity is like, it's, it's something different than what my standup is. Um, and uh, yeah, so Twitter has been, um, it's been really fun. I mean, obviously it's also a huge drain, but I get something, I get a lot out of it. Um, and I've been able to connect with like a ton of really funny people, but I started doing it because I thought it would help my standup. And now like, I still workshop jokes on Twitter, but I would say the thing that's probably more beneficial is like having followers so I can like sell tickets to a show. Um, that's a little bit better than like just being able to workshop jokes. Now, I spend a lot of time on Twitter and sadly Facebook um, because I'm a reporter and, you know, getting stories out there. And yeah. uh, I just I'm on it. My screen time is horrendous. I mean, I, I, I just find it such a toxic place most of the time. I'll be honest. I just people are so angry. I don't know if they're and then I found out, you know, people some people just fake being angry, like the troll thing. I. I didn't know that uh, yeah. like the theater of their, I don't know, but are you ever scared on Twitter? How do you get over that? Because people are just so, there can just be so nasty and it's always someone with 20 followers. So I, Definitely. Yeah. It's always someone, but yeah. I mean, does it, I'm very thin skinned. I don't know why I'm in this job, but um, how do you deal with that stuff? Or do you just not look at it sometimes? I, um, I definitely look at it. My DMs are open and I read almost everything. I mean, uh, some, some of them will get to me. It's pretty scary though. Cause the people who like send the most hateful messages are clearly the most obsessed. And like the oh. ones who are following every single piece of information about your life, you know, like I got like a very long message the other day from a guy who was like, I need you to know how unfunny you are. And like, but then it just went on and on and it was clear he knew everything about me. Like, I think he knew way more about me than someone who might consider themselves like, you know, like a, a loose fan, like someone who likes my tweets, but isn't like super engaged. And like, um, it was really scary because like I post my shows publicly. I don't really want um, people like that coming to them, even though I, I have to post them publicly. Um, so that's pretty scary. The other thing though is like, there is a lot of like kindness on Twitter. Um and like I posted those screenshots kind of like as I like made a joke about them because he kept he kept like calling me a celebrity and I'm really not like and I I was like that's kind of sweet that like even though he's being so mean he's like I don't understand how you're so famous I'm like I'm truly not famous like um but like it it was just like I I posted that as kind of a joke and then people wrote really nice things I also to be honest I'm like a political junkie and um probably in a way that's also a huge time suck but like I'll read the comments on tweets from like Ben Shapiro and like one of the more inspiring things is like the people who are like deeply religious who kind of like use bible verses to sort of condemn like the hateful things that people on the right are saying right now like I find that really interesting and sweet like it's very uplifting because it's like ostensibly the people who they're trying to pander to but then like when they get to be like so hateful it um they sort of like turn their base against them and I find that really like it's like nice to see them like kind of, I I, I don't know. It's nice to, 
it's just like it inspires me I guess I, I think I'm way more inspired by people who are capable of um changing their minds or rejecting what they've been taught than people who kind of like their whole life believe like the same things that I did I agree and I, you reminded me because I forget you know I'm in a lot of therapy and 12-step programs I I forget there is kindness out there and it's a powerful yeah. Yeah. to reach people and there's a connection like I, I can connect with someone very you know easily you also can tell if people can spell and stuff it's like texting it's it's yeah totally congratulations on your sobriety thank you thank you I've been um it's I'm totally lucky I'm very very lucky and I I uh just have to I still can't believe it I was super I was really bad Ginny um I got sober in New Orleans which is oh wow badge of (laughs) (laughs) from one it was like the the last night was a night in New Orleans oh yeah yeah it was a three-day but oh yeah everyone knows (laughs) everyone knows (laughs) Um, and and you talk about yours and in a lot of personal stuff I do some stand-up too and I'm not comparing myself to you but I'm I'm okay um and and mine is I try to be authentic there's some of it as persona I guess what I'm asking is how do you um someone told me a while ago they're like be careful with the self-deprecating stuff you know you're a woman you're sober you're you know, you're, you're super gay, like, just be careful with some of that. And I don't know, I worry if I'm too self-deprecating. I like making fun of my life. I think it's hilarious. How do you handle all that? Well, um, well, what were their concerns? Was it that they thought that it would like get to you if you were too self-deprecating? Yeah, 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 that, that they, um, they were like, don't put yourself down. Because sometimes you know, I, people like sometimes you don't even see it. And I, you know, I think about it sometimes. I've been asking other comics, like, do you think I'm, and some of them are like, no, you're fine. I mean, um, to me, that's what I connect with. I see people connecting with that kind of stuff. Um, and it's funny, my hair gets crazy, Jenny. South Florida. (laughs) I mean, my hair gets really crazy too. I think the self-deprecating stuff is interesting because, like, yeah, it. I mean, it's hard. Like, to I've made jokes about my appearance and then had women be like, "That's not feminist. Like, you shouldn't do that." Which, like, kind of like I see where they're coming from. I don't necessarily agree because I feel like if it's my appearance, I'm allowed to make jokes about it. But like, um, or it's I'm kind of like getting there before a man does or something. Um, but yeah, I do see where they're coming from. Um. But I, I don't know. I feel like um, it's, it's a tough, like, it's a tough line to, to walk because you're relatable if you're able to laugh at yourself, but then you don't want to like laugh at yourself for things that might make someone else feel bad, you know? Um, And so I think that that's sort of maybe like one of the bigger challenges of stand up. But I would say like, I think when I'm making self-deprecating stuff, like it's coming from a place of truth, but for me to be able to like laugh at it means that I've already like kind of grown a little, you know, like I'm sober and I'll make jokes about like crazy things I did when I was drunk. But like when I was actually drunk and doing those crazy things, it was like very serious to me and I would not have wanted to make a joke about it. So now it's like a little bit, at least I'm like kind of able to like look back and laugh a little bit more easily. Same with the, the, um, now it's funny, but of course it wasn't at the time at all at all and um yeah one of my jokes is like it scares people a little but they they laugh they just laugh about blackout and coming out of it and what people tell you you did it's never anything good Jenny it's never yeah but people need that kind of honesty you know and like it might reach someone who um like maybe needs to hear a story like that you know yeah you're right you're right and oh man it's it's only happened a few times when I get off stage and people like I'm sober too and they're so excited to um bond with that and but 
Yeah. But think about for all the people who come up to you to say that there are all the people who are like shy or, you know, leave before they get to say hello, who also are reached by it. It's, it's, it's great. And, um, to, to just feel connected and, um, wanted to ask about your writing process or like a friend of mine's like, Glenn, just write every day. And I, I, I'm like, I, I, I wait till something hits me. And uh, someone was like, no, you need to write every day and just write it out. I mean, how do you, do you write every day? Do you um, keep a journal? I, I mean, I keep a journal that's kind of separate. It's like a gratitude journal. I don't know if that helps my writing so much. I do write something every day. I need, I'm like trying to um, commit an hour a day to writing something that's like long-term basically. Cause like I can get very hung up in like writing, um, tweets and uh short pieces for the internet that have to go out or like meeting deadlines and I need to carve out more time to write like long-term things or I'll never like kind of finish a longer project basically um but yeah I read I, I used to be so I think like honestly my big breakthrough in writing was to be less ambitious because I used to be like I'm gonna write four hours a day and like that's crazy talk you know like no one writes four. I mean, some people probably write four hours a day, but like, then I would just always feel bad or like, I would like dread starting. Cause I'd be like, I'm going to start and I'm going to do four hours of this. And now it's like, okay, one hour a day, you know, like I can like check my email every 15 minutes. Like it's like, if I cut an hour into 15 minute chunks, it's like not, it's really quite manageable. Um, so that's kind of what, um, what I do now. Yeah. And the, you know, I, I, I love standup. I, I forget how much fun it, the, the guys at the club, we have one club here and they're like, um, this is supposed to be fun. I'm like, you're right. I'm supposed to have fun. <laughs> and I do it. Can you, can you talk about what it's like when a joke hits in that connecting with that audience in real time? Like to me, it's an art form. It's so fun. I mean, yeah. Like I don't, uh, I know what you mean where like you're at clubs and you're like, is this fun at all? Or am I just like totally exhausted and like performing for these drunk people? Um, but then when it hits, it's like so funny if you didn't think a joke was going to work and then you realize it like does resonate with people. It's just kind of like a high. Um, I'm not like the most crowd worky comedian. Like I don't know if I always feel super connected to the audience when I'm leaving. Um, but I definitely like sometimes when I realize that something that's funny to me is funny to other people too. It does make me feel very connected because it is just like sort of like a different way of of like being a little bit closer to people. Yeah, that feeling. Um, I never forget the first time it hit some years back and I I didn't think that line was the punchline and it was. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good feeling to just have. Yeah, and then you just have more jokes. I mean, it's, it's great. It's great. And I am super, um, I'm a, totally shy person I just had to kind of suck it up because I'm a reporter <laughs> and um and and the stand-up has just so helped me understand like accept myself and sort of get some you know self-worth like it's um I'm a lot older than you like I'm tons older but but <laughs> I mean it just was a while and um I guess what what I wanted to ask was just um when it comes to appearances like I'm I'm too scared to put any videos up like a friend of mine's like just put something on tiktok 10 seconds and i'm like no because people are gonna call call me out on what i look like and it's taken me so long to feel good about that um what's your advice people do make comments about my appearance like positive and negative but it's not as though like i you know like sometimes i'll complain because someone will like call me ugly and my friends will be like the thing about the people who tell you that you're attractive and i'm like but that's not that great either <laughs> like i also I don't that disturbing <laughs> yeah as, yeah uh, uh i would prefer that they just said nothing on both yes, ends it's definitely nicer but it's still not necessary um 
Yeah, I mean, I listen, the internet is a mean place. Um, I think TikTok might be a little bit nicer though. Like I feel like Gen Z is really nice. And like I've had people make mean comments about my appearance and um then someone else will comment like fuck off you know like I don't know like I think it might be nice on Twitter um maybe not for long or maybe only in like the silos that I'm in um but yeah that is real I would like encourage you to not read the comments but that's advice that I myself don't take so you know (laughs) take that with a grain of salt um but yeah it is definitely like very brutal um ultimately though like one thing I'm really trying to work on is like remembering that other people's opinions of me don't make any difference on my life you know like they actually don't like threaten any material thing in my life and they just live inside someone else's head um and I have to just think that like all the time even about anything even if it's with people I know even if it's like did I rub that person the wrong way it's like it just isn't ever it's probably never going to get back to me and it's only going to exist in my head worrying about it and in their head thinking it so like it's really not worth like spending time on and, and like you said earlier, it's just what a great way to um, self-promote or get it out there. If you, you know, if you want to do the, if I want to do comedy elsewhere, I mean, I'm really lucky here. I go up a lot, but it's Key West. You know? <laughs> if I want to do this elsewhere, it's like, you know, to get your name out, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty much the way to go. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like putting stuff online. And um, final question. I know I've kept you uh, longer than I am. Um, talk about uh, you know you travel a lot for for um, stand up and um, what's that like? Is that hard? It to me seems so hard to be on the go in the planes and it's really tiring. Yeah, um, <laughs> I am like in the midst of travel right now. Um, it's stressful because you're always worried. If, like if you have a flight and a show on the same day, you're always worried get, you'll get delayed. Um, I don't really like traveling that much. So yeah, all around, I would say it's pretty exhausting. Um, but I, I don't know. I think it's, it's fun too. Um, you get to meet a ton of new people and see new places. Um, it's just hard if, if you're trying to like balance too much work while also trying to be on the go. But, um, yeah, I mean, I recommend, uh, if you like traveling, but, um, but yeah, it is, it is as tiring as it sounds, I would say, but I think I'm particularly ill-equipped for it because I never really like flying and I don't like late nights. I think there are other, um, other comedians who are maybe like a little bit better for better at um at like balancing the travel with performing i i agree we have a lot in common i think we should be best friends totally i would love that i'm gonna come to key west i'd love to do some comedy with you how to get down here you gotta get down here jenny hogan thank you so much for taking the time and uh, continued success on everything Super excited to talk to the director of the Bahama Village Music Program. This program has been a while around for 21 years in Key West, offering free music education to kids six and up. Kawana Staffney, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I don't even know where to start. This program is so to me, it's so Key West. Like it's just beautiful. Um, can you talk a little bit about the history and I mean, 21 years? Absolutely. This program was created in 1999 to honor Ellen Sanchez. 
she was a music teacher here in Bahama Village who, after she retired, saw that there was no music back here and the kids weren't learning how to play instruments. And so therefore she started giving free and some free, some had to pay if they were able to pay, but she started giving lessons throughout the community and it just blossomed. Coffee Butler was one of her most famous students to date as far as QS fame goes. Mm -hmm. And she played, she did that up until she was 105 years old. So gosh, that is so impressive. Absolutely. So Robin Kaplan, who's the program's founder, she took her model and just brought it to life. And there, there you have Bahama Village Music Program. I started off as a community, as a parent volunteer. My son joined the program when he was six years old and I just kept volunteering. He was in Joyful Voices Choir. He tried piano, not too good. He realized he was just a singer, so that's okay. And, and I started that way and, and I just, I've always loved the program, held it near and dear to my heart. And so it is my absolute pleasure now to be at the helm. And and again, free, these are free classes for uh, all kids. It doesn't matter where you live in Key West, right? Absolutely. This is Mm F-R-E-E. I cannot emphasize it more. We operate solely behind the generosity of donors and grants that we apply for statewide and even locally. So we are allowed to bring free, free, free lessons to anyone ages 6 to 18 in our, our various programs. And you've got, um, I have been down there. It's been a little while. I mean, we're talking um, guitar, uh, trumpet, piano, right? I mean, basically anything a kid could could want to learn. Anything you could want to learn. Drums, guitar, bass, trumpet, saxophone, piano. We've got our Joyful Voices Choir. We have the Junior Junkin' News Program, which is also mm-hmm. a Bahamian tradition. Uh, we have the House of House of Pan Still Pan Band, which is awesome. That's headed up by Nora Revelin, who is a former teacher as well. Uh, we have the Jazz Ensemble, which performed at the recently at the Green Parade at the Fats Navarro Tribute, which was awesome. They're great. And then we have the School of Rock. Nice. Nice. That's a, that's a lot. How many volunteers do you have? Are you always in need of uh, the, the teachers? Are you always in need of some? We are always in need of teachers. Um, We usually try to utilize student teachers uh, because it's one thing for kids to get stuff from adults. It's another thing when kids get it from kids. And sometimes it makes the environment easier, relatable, and they can give them some of their trial and errors from when they learn how to play. So we usually utilize a lot of kids from Key West High School in the band. Um, we also do have some adult instructors. We have Kate Jen Duncan, who was the former ED, and she still does um, School of Rock, Joyful Voices Choir, and ukulele. Oh, I forgot about ukulele. We do have ukulele class, too. Very, very Key West. <laughs> and so, right? <laughs> so we also have Larry Bader, who handles our music theory class, and he heads up the jazz ensemble. So we have a mixture of adult and student teachers. And yes, anyone who is willing to work with children and be patient, I welcome you to come have a conversation with me and we can sure get you on board. That's great. Now, Bahama Village Music Program located uh, right there in Bahama Village. And um, can you talk about uh, the music traditions of Key West? You mentioned Junkanoos and I 
it never heard of that till I got down here. It reminded me of New Orleans in a way, you know, the the parades and the brass bands. But this is such um, a specific tradition. Can, can you just explain what the Junkanoo's are for me mostly? <laughs> <laughs> the Junkanoo, Junkanoo is a huge deal. I am Cuban and Bahamian of natural descent. So Junkanoo's mean a lot to me. Junkanoo is the way we celebrate, whether it's the living, whether it's the dead, whether it's an event, a marriage, it doesn't matter. That is our form of celebration through the rhythmic drums, the old, they used to have those old washboards, those metal washboards and used to just break across it. It was anything that you can make a sound on. And it just is the pulse of the community. It is the heart and soul of the community. And I just couldn't let that go away. It started a lot before I got here, but we are revamping it and passing it on to a whole new generation so that it doesn't go down and it just keeps going on from generation to generation to generation. Because a lot of the older Key West original Junkanoos have gone on to glory. So I'm so blessed to still have Harold Pelote who is one of the original Key West Junkanoos to head up our program. And these kids are having a ball. They recently performed at the 200th Key West Celebration and they had a blast. And the dignitaries from the Bahamas appreciated it just as well. So. Now, when we, um, when we're, we talk about free music lessons to kids, what, what or I would assume that this is the first, for a lot of these children, the first time they're, exposed to music their introduction to playing music um for some right? yeah for some it is for some it's the very first time they've laid their fingers on an instrument for some it's a way to reacquaint themselves with an instrument for others it's a way to make sure they get that necessary practice in that um they may have and then for some it's just for the sheer love of the instrument itself so um, it's great because you watch them at different levels. Mm-hmm. You watch the beginners, you watch the semis, and you watch the pros. And it's fantastic to see the growth because even the ones who got it, got it, they still have room to grow. And so to watch that growth is just a wonderful thing to see. And, and generally, I always think, I mean, I grew up taking some piano lessons and I was really fortunate that, that my family could, could you know, they, they're not cheap the lessons and um, lucky enough that we had a little piano and it really just opened my world up a little bit, you know, as a kid to like music is so um, important. I think. It is a universal language. I feel whatever you can't sit down and say with your mouth, you can say through your music. Mm -hmm. And that's whether you sing it, whether you play it, it doesn't matter. I mean, music has always for me even been my go-to whether I'm happy, sad, mad, whatever the case may be. And so these kids utilize it in the same way. It's their outlet. It is their way to break free. It is their way to let their voices be heard. And I love the fact that we incorporate a lot of different types of music. So my thing too, is when we have people who are non-English speakers, but you may be from Cuba, you may be from El Salvador, you may be from Nicaragua, but you have you have a native sound. So when you bring that native sound over, 
we can feel you. We can understand what you're talking about. And these kids can express themselves. It helps with people understanding the diversity of each other. I like, I like it. Now, uh, Kiwana, you're, you're from Key West. We, we call, uh, you know, you're conch. <laughs> born and raised. Yes. I am proud to say I'm a conch. Yes. It's, talk about, I, I love talking to people who are from here and you, you go back several generations with your family here. I mean, what, 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 what I, I know you don't know what it's like to live anywhere, <laughs> but what is it like? What are your memories of growing up in Key West? Uh, Bahama village is just that it was a village. It, it was, it was everything. It was everything to me. Um, you, you always had a kind face around the corner. You never went a day without something in your belly. You had everyone in the neighborhood looking out for you, no matter what you had so much help. You had so much encouragement. You had so much love outside of your own front door. It just, it, it couldn't be matched. It's unparalleled. And that's why I chose to raise my kids here because you can't get anywhere else what you get here in Key West. There's just nothing to describe it. And even still, even though a lot of Bahama Village has changed and it is not what I've grown up knowing it to be, uh, the people are still here. So as long as the people are still here and then you have people that are determined to preserve what we have and the legacies that were created, my kids can still get a little bit of it, but there's nothing like the camaraderie that conks have mm. that there's nothing like it. The, when they say conk pride, it is true conk pride. I mean, there's, uh, I can't place my heart. If I could put my heart out to you and show you and open it up and see everything, um, you would totally see it. I mean, I grew up in, um, on Whitehead street right between Angela and Petronia. And there was so much going on just in that little block. And you saw a whole lot of everything. And the church was, I went right there to Cornish Memorial Amy Zion Church. That's actually 158 years old now, I believe. And um, I grew up there. My grandmother actually graduated below at the understand under under they call it the undercroft but in the undercroft my grandmother graduated from high school there and she's now 94 years old and still here to tell you some of the stories when you got to meet her one of these days okay she's she's i, I have to meet her i you love have her. to meet her <laughs> i love the, the to learn from from those people who uh you know raised us up absolutely so, she can tell you some things that even i can't tell you but there's nothing like it um it's just, it's truly a village and a village truly raised me. And that's basically what I try to do and carry on that legacy through the program. And then even outside of the program. And, um, and now did you grow up in a musical family or are you a musician, your musician yourself? Now that's the funny thing. I did not. (laughs) My mom, she, she's, she's not a singer. She doesn't play music. I just grew up loving it. My dad was a DJ when I was growing up. Great. And so most of my uh, things come from singing. I love to sing. I've sang all through school, started in HOB when Miss Jackie Williams started the choir there and then went all the way through high school with Mr. Wilt. 
but I couldn't play instrument to save my soul. So I, I use my voice as an instrument. Voice count, voice is an instrument. That's, that's I, I just, I just use that because anything else just, it didn't, it wasn't happening for me. But um, uh, that's, that's where my music comes from. I, I sing. My son, he sings too. Now I have another son. He's straight athletic, nothing. But um, I couldn't honestly tell you. I wish my mom could pinpoint and tell me exactly where the love comes from. But I would just say if I had to pinpoint it myself, I would say it would come from my dad. Just listening to him DJ and put all those things together and watching how it moved the crowd and everything like that. And, and seeing that kind of joy and then wanted to bring that same kind of joy to people. So. That's great. And now how many, how many kids are, uh, are in uh, classes in a given seat, uh, given school year? On a, on a regular school year, we can serve anywhere up to 200 kids a week. And that's in and out with all of our ensembles and individual lessons combined. So about 200 kids a week, we can service in our small little facility, but we still make it happen. That's amazing. That's every kid in QS. I'm just kidding. That's a <laughs> lot of kids. That is a lot. Like um, it. <laughs> and some of them have probably been coming for years. They grew up there. Yeah, a lot of our student teachers started off as students themselves in the program and then just have stayed through with us throughout the years and we have become student teachers and then they've gone on to great colleges and done big things. I have two seniors coming out this year. One is going to the Berkeley School of Music. So we're super excited for her. And the other, he's still on the fence about where he's going, but he's actually going this summer to our Berkeley Aspire program where he gets to play with international artists from all over the world. So there are a lot of opportunities and these kids take advantage of each and every last one of them, which is great. I'm so glad you brought up Berkeley um, in your program there. Uh, I'm, and Berkeley is this famous, famous music school in Boston and so many professional music, you know, rock stars and such went there and and talk about the you have the berkeley city music network basically you're you're sending key west kids up there to uh to berkeley for for a five-week program correct we are we have the crooks annual second line parade every year in january or february and what we do with the proceeds from that we use to send a student to the year five-week berkeley aspire program and in that five-week program, they go to Boston and they get to meet students from all over who either play something similar to them, maybe a different genre of music, but they all come together, collab, and they work on their craft. They own their craft for five weeks. You have to qualify. So it's not like you're just an easy in because we paid for it. These kids have to put in the work. They've got to put in their audition tape and they've got to, they've got to be chosen. And then once they do so, they get to enjoy a opportunity of a lifetime. And we do pay for that. That is great. And wanted to make sure I asked um, when it comes to equipment and instruments and such, um, uh, are, are there things that you need or donations or do you buy most of them? How, how does that work? Well, we have a, such a generous community and we get a lot of donations. We are in need of bass, bass guitars, 
Uh, we're in need of some more brass instruments, uh, maybe uh, clarinets along those lines and things like that. But we solely operate on donations unless there is a true desire and we have it in our budget to do so to purchase an instrument. But mainly it's through the generous donations of the community and people abroad who have heard about us. Because I was thinking, um, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the kids can use the instruments there, right? They don't have to buy one. Correct. No, they, they can use the instruments we have here. We even loan them out um, during a school year season so they can take them home and practice if they don't have an instrument at home to practice with. We want to make sure that everybody has everything that they need to be successful. Well, I have to tell you, I, I've written some stories about the program and I was there once in the little choir was singing the choir and I'm telling you I have never seen such happy kids or people in my life they were so (laughs) happy they were doing this uh, Lady Gaga song but I think they changed the lyrics to make them you know more kid kid friendly kid friendly something about (laughs) pasta ravioli they were singing they were I mean their faces were just lit up and um uh someone was playing the piano this little kid was banging on the drums like he was good (laughs) <laughs> and um, they're all good, but I'm saying it, it just, it's such a happy place. It absolutely is. And these next two weeks, it's going to be an even happier place because there's student testing going on at the schools. And usually this is the outlet to get rid of some of that anxiety and stress that they've had during their school days. So yesterday there was a huge jam session in, in the uh, other room with the jazz ensemble and I'm assuming that it's going to be like this for the next two weeks, but there's nothing but smiling faces when they get in there and they can hear themselves and see themselves and just to be able to be with one another and put together some good music and have fun. That's just basically what it's all about. It's it's the most fun place. I, I just, I, I still remember. It's been a while since I was there for the choir. And also, uh, is there a big recital show coming up? There is on May 19th at 6 p.m. in Douglas Gym, we are going to have our end of season recital where you'll get to see all of our ensemble groups perform as well as individual students putting forth some of their pieces that they've learned through their lessons throughout this season. That is great. That is great. Uh, Kawana Staffney of the Bahama Village Music Program, thank you for taking the time. I'll put the website and contact information on the podcast notes. And, and you know what, I want to thank you for all you do for the community. Oh, thank you. It is my absolute pleasure. I love every minute of it. Thanks for listening to We're Not Finished podcast presented by the Studios of Key West. The Studios is a leading art institution in South Florida. It's located downtown at 533 Eaton Street. For a list of events and more programming like this, go to tskw.org.